Next week on Thursday, not this week, next week, next week on Thursday, May the 3rd, we will have rolling around for us the 50th observance of what is known as the National Day of Prayer. A little quick background on this. came into existence in 1952, the joint resolution of Congress signed by President Harry Truman. And in 1988, Ronald Reagan signed a slight amendment or alteration to it so that the National Day of Prayer now, by that, falls on the uh, first Thursday of the month of May every year. So it seems appropriate tonight to talk a little bit about this. I have several motives in mind. One is I sure think we need to pray for our country. And other things I will hope to unfold as I go along in the message tonight. A message I titled, Praying for America. And the text I've chosen, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, is a fabulous place for us to go to think about the subject of national prayer. Because even though the principles are certainly not restricted to praying for our nation, it becomes very apparent as you read this passage that this is the preeminent burden that's on the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul in this exhortation to prayer. Of course, we all realize there are many exhortations to prayer in the Bible, but this is a passage that peculiarly and especially emphasizes the need for us to pray in a national sense. Notice verse 2, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, and more, of course, is in the passage. There are four things I'd like to bring before you tonight from the passage. First of all, the importance of such prayer. Next, the scope of such prayer, then the goal of national prayer, and finally, the Bible has something to say to us here in the last verse that we read, verse 8, about the qualification of praying. First of all, the importance. Look at verse number 1, the first part. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, of course, if you know anything about 1 Timothy, you know that Paul is, is particularly addressing issues in the church. And in the first chapter, Paul, of course, has dealt with some things relating to false teachers, but when we get to chapter 2, he begins especially now to deal with the ongoing affairs and services of the church. You might notice some other topics that come up. In verse number 9, Paul begins to talk about the role of women. There's a subject, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety and so forth. And these things are principles to be sure that we can apply across the board, but they find a particular application and uh, exhortation when we think about uh, a public worship. And then we come down to uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. This is a faithful saying or a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, and then we know from there that Paul discusses the qualifications for the elders, the pastors, the bishops, I take this in the scripture to refer to the same individual. And when we come then, then down to a little bit later in the chapter, verse 8, likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. We come into chapter 4 and Paul continues to tell us things that relate to the public affairs and services of the church. He says to Timothy in verse number 13, till I come give attendance to reading to exhortation, to doctrine, and he goes on from there. And there are a number of other things we could give by way of example. I think the point that I'm trying to make by showing you these unfolding topics that Paul wants to talk about in regards to the uh, worship of the church is this verse number one of chapter two, I exhort therefore that first of all. Well, the thing that heads the list, the thing that's first, the thing that's a priority in terms of his exhortations to the church is that the church pray. 
Well, boy, there's a turn of thought because if you really look at what we believe and then what we practice, there's a divergence because everybody here tonight would agree and say, oh, yes, amen, prayer, preacher, prayer is to be a priority. But do we make it a priority? Prayer is to be a priority. Somehow, though, it seems like whether it's personal praying or praying for our nation. Now, I'm not here to badger you tonight, okay? Please don't misunderstand me. I came out of the same bolt of cloth you did. It's all Adamic and it's all fallen, right? <laughs> so I'm just here to encourage and exhort. But it is an interesting thing to me to realize that most of us don't really take time to pray for our nation. In other words, it is not only true that prayer is less than a priority to us personally, where maybe we might think that matters are more urgent. We have pressing family needs, we have situations we really should be praying about, we have unsafe people in our family, other things that, that certainly are important, and we don't even realize how important it is that we pray at the beginning of the day, because if you start a day off without God and then you stumble through it, you only have to look in the mirror to find out where the problem is. If you don't include God in your day and don't ask God's blessing on your day, even if you can only do that for three to five minutes, that's better than nothing, I'll tell you. So oftentimes it's true that prayer is not even a priority, even about things that ought to be personally important, much less when you think about praying for our nation. I would confess to it. This last election cycle, I think I got more concerned about it and realized more how important it is. But look at this in the context tonight. It is clear enough that Paul's specific concern is national prayer. He talks generally in the first verse. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, and he names these things, prayer be made for all men. In other words, we should not exclude classes of people from our prayer. And yet that's a tendency that we all have. Not necessarily because we're biased. I think we just don't broaden our horizons far enough. And many times I think we lack faith. And I'll say more about that in just a moment. But now when he really gets to the heart of what's on his heart, he says, for kings and for all that are in authority, these are people in public life, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto a knowledge of the truth. This is why a number of years ago in our little list that I, well, in a, the little list that I generally give to the deacon who prays on Sunday morning, I developed a list and I keep it right in, the, in my desk in my main drawer. And when I get ready for Sunday services, and I have that little list of prayer requests that I give to the deacon for that day, we go through that cycle of praying for our public officials. Because of this scripture, this scripture exhorts us to do that. Now, we're concerned to keep prayers brief, especially in the morning, you know, when we have uh, lots of fidgety kids and all that type of thing. But uh, it is important that we do this, and it's important that we set an example for our private lives and what goes on here publicly at the church. It's not good, a good idea for us to abdicate all responsibility of praying for our public officials just because we consider politics to be dirty and some Christians seem to feel that politics is a place you can't be. Well, I don't think that's true, but I think you'll have to be a good Christian to be in it and, and keep your testimony. But I have personally known some people, Christian people in politics, that I thought did a fine job and really served the Lord in that capacity. But I just think that sometimes, and I... I guess since I are one, I can say this by way of critique, but sometimes our mentality in fundamental circles is a withdrawal mentality. And to be sure, there are things that we have to separate from. We have to separate from worldliness. We have to take whatever measures are appropriate to protect our own testimony and the well-being and, 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 and safety of our children. We have to make educational decisions concerning our children. All of these things are true. 
And all of these things, to some extent, need to be left after good preaching and Bible teaching to the choice of the believer in his relationship and in his walk with God. These are not always things that we can make a test of fellowship. But I just think that sometimes we've withdrawn to the point that we don't realize that Jesus said, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. Well, if you withdraw into a castle and pull up the door and put a moat around it, how are you ever going to do that? And I think sometimes what's happened is we've withdrawn from so many areas and sectors of public life, and then we scream and kick and holler about what's wrong with them. Well, if you take the salt out and you take the light out, it's going to go downhill fast. And you can find many examples of this in the Bible. When did God send the flood on the earth? When did God send his judgment on Sodom? When he couldn't find righteous people there. So this is, this is something that I'm concerned about for myself personally because, well, in my capacity maybe it's a little bit different in some ways, but I guess all of us really, aren't we charged to pray one for another? And I try to pray for you folks. I really do. I, I keep a lot of prayer burdens on my heart. And if anything, I have to, to fight to pray sometimes about things that don't need to be neglected in my prayer life because church concerns squeeze out all of the other concerns that ought to be represented in my prayer life. This is one of them that he's talking about here. I exhort, therefore, first of all. Now, answer me honestly tonight. You don't have to shake your head or give away anything. But is praying for our nation and our leaders and people in public life, is that really a priority for most of us? In the course of a week, if you pray ever how many times, do you ever think to pray for President Bush or for other public officials? And we name them here from the pulpit on a regular basis, and we don't even name them all. Well, we should, beloved, and that's what this sermon is about tonight. You know, these people desperately need our prayers, whether they know it or not. They desperately need our prayers. And it is encouraging, though, to pray for those who know they need our prayers. That's a little more encouraging than those that, that don't know they need it. But before I leave this point, allow me to say one other thing. Reflecting on the fact that prayer is so often not a priority for us, and yet it's God's priority. Let me show you one example of this from another scripture, and you don't have to turn, but here's one that I think really makes the point so eloquently to me, because if you ask a lot of people, what's the job of the church, and what's important in church? But one of the first things people will come up with was they'll say, well, preaching the gospel to people so that people can be saved. Well, that's true. I agree with that. But look at this. When Jesus is talking about this very subject in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says, He saw the multitudes. He was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now, I'll tell you, that, that exhortation right there goes completely against the grain of what our natural tendency is, typically even in what we might call spiritually thinking circles. We would say, well, if the harvest is plenteous and the laborers are few, we need to get a new program. We need to train people. We need to uh, start a Bible college. We need to get people out there. And I say amen to all that. I only want, I'm not against that. I think we have to do all those things. And I think we have to preach and stir ourselves up to be personal witnesses. But look what the foundation of it all is. Before he talks about any of those things, he says, Pray ye therefore. And it becomes the foundation of everything else that we do. Now, if you really stop and carry that thought, that illustration through for a minute, it becomes the foundation. It's not a priority with us, but it is with God. To God, prayer is foundational. Now, what are we building on then? When we do our service for the Lord, when we come to teach our Sunday school class, what are we building on? 
Are we building on prayer? Did we pray? Did we ask the Lord to prepare our hearts as we studied the lesson? Did we pray about the impact of the lesson? If you're a Sunday school teacher, have you gone through and prayed for the kids in your class? Do we pray about our Sunday services or do we just sort of come in casually and then we kind of wonder, well, I didn't get that much out of the message this morning. Well, there are things you can do to increase what you get out of a church service, even though I don't think our approach to a church service ought to just be centered on what we can get. But praying is one of them. Praying that God would open your heart, prepare your heart. Praying for the pastor. He needs it. Bad. So pray for him. And pray that the atmosphere and the spirit would be conducive. Pray for the people who do the music. They do a tremendous service for us. So the importance of prayer. It is not a priority with us, but it is with God, and it's foundational to God. And what are we building on anyway if we're not praying? Well, secondly, let's look at some thoughts relating to what I've called the scope of this national prayer. And there are a lot of things I could say in these eight verses, and there isn't time to do that, so I'm kind of going to hit some high points tonight. There are two thoughts under the idea of scope that I would like to give you, and the first of them has to do with balance. Look at the first verse. I exhort, therefore, that first of all. Okay, that's as far as we've gotten. <laughs> then it says, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. We have the four terms there that are each specific terms, supplications and prayers. Those words tend to focus more on the petition aspect of our praying. Intercessions, intercession is something that we do when we stand between. An attorney intercedes for a client, and in much the same way, when we engage in intercessory prayer, we are standing between God, we are going to God on someone else's behalf. All right, and then finally he says giving of thanks. By him, therefore, the book of Hebrews says in chapter 13 and verse 15, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks or praise to his name. My point about balance is this. Evaluate your prayer for a minute and ask yourself, is it balanced or is it lopsided? This is for all of us. This is not preaching down. But isn't it true that oftentimes our praying sort of degenerates into almost exclusively asking asking for ourselves and we should we should have those petitions in there the bible says ask and it shall be given unto you seek and ye shall find knock and it shall be opened unto you but beloved if our prayer is nothing more than just asking for things that we want we've missed out on intercession and we've missed out on praise and those are things that god wants to be in our prayer now i don't you know i struggled with this long ago and tried to figure out well, how do you do that well you start out the first five minutes is praise I never did very much with that. That didn't seem to work with me. Now, I do try to start out that way. I'll try to start out with confession, and I try to start out with a little bit of praise, but I never did very well with saying, okay, the first 10 minutes is going to be praise. But I tell you what I do do well with. I do well with mixing my praise all the way through. I, that, that works very well for me. As you pray about different things, you think of things to thank the Lord for, and boy, that goes right along with the song, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. A good time of prayer with a conscious effort to include praise honors God. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice. It's one of our spiritual sacrifices as believers, priests, to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks or praise to his name. So there's a thought of balance. Our praying should be balanced. And, you know, there's a whole lot of intercession that needed to be done and still does need to be done. And we... 
we think about the last eight years, I don't know what, that, what it is about that. In some ways it seems like yesterday, and in some ways it just seems like a bad dream that never happened. Excuse me, I don't mean to be partisan tonight. My comments are not so much partisan as much as they are just an honest reflection of the degradation that we experienced in the last eight years. But I take the challenge of that, and well, how much did I pray for the man? How much did I pray for some of our congressional leaders? And certainly not enough, I can tell you that. Intercession is very, very important, praying for other people, rejoicing that even though we didn't care for a lot of what came out of the last eight years, it's a whole lot better than the gulag, right? It's still better than the gulag. Balance needs to be in our praying. And the second thought under the scope of our praying is the word breadth. Breadth. Now, what I mean by that is how narrow is our praying or how wide is our praying? This is the whole gist of this passage, that our prayers shouldn't just be limited to the obvious things like family and church and us. But he says, I exhort therefore that first of all, all these things be done on behalf of kings and all that are in authority, that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And I think a lot of our problem here, as I said a while ago, is a lack of faith. But you know, God is interested in souls. God is interested in the souls of men. And God is not just interested in the souls of winos and druggies and prostitutes. He is. Thank the Lord He is. But He's also interested in the souls of rich people. He's also interested in the souls of politicians. He's also interested in the soul of the king. That's what this says. It says, who will have all men to be saved. In other words, God is no respecter of persons. God looks upon all classes of men, regardless of what side of the railroad tracks they come from, and God sent His only begotten Son into the world to die for all classes of men. God hasn't excluded anyone. You know, you can walk up to somebody on the street and you don't have to wonder, well, now, is this somebody God loved? God loves everyone. God loves all classes of people. God loves the president. God loves the vice president. God loves all men. And if God loves all men, then why are we excluding these people from our praying? We shouldn't do that. This message tonight is an encouragement to us not to do that. Let me tell you a story, and, and you know that I have mentioned this at least one time before, but I want to sort of give an epilogue to it. I had a chance to share some of this the other night with Brother Jack. We were going on visitation, but I mentioned this morning being over at Harrisburg Monday at the minister's seminar, and this was one that was put on by Bob Jones. And uh, it's always good. To, they do it every two years. It's always good to get over and see people and and if you don't have any other occasion to do it, it's always good to see Dr. Bob. And so we went over and they bring a plane load of people and put on stuff for the ladies and they put on stuff for the men. And so we go through, you know, and uh, it's really good just to renew fellowship and hear some preaching and some teaching and this type of thing. Get your batteries charged a little bit. Well, the thing was over and it was time to go. And I hadn't had any opportunity prior to that to greet Dr. Bob, so I walked up there and and uh, for no particular reason, I had already bummed around talking to some other people, so the crowd had thinned out some. There were a couple people waiting to talk to him, and I just waited on him. I, I really didn't have any agenda, except that I really did want to ask him a question, a specific question. Now, I'd already asked him one question earlier. In fact, I threw my hand up. when They had two question and answer times. First question and answer time, he started that thing off, and I threw my hand up right away, because I'm very interested in all this hoorah that took place, as, you know, with, with the McCain thing and all that, and I... My question was, as you look back over all that hoorah that took place, what is the key thing that you have seen as an example of Romans 8.28, of God overruling, God meant it, or they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I was in, very interested in that. 
And in the second question and answer, I really wanted to ask him this next question, but it just didn't seem like a good opportunity. All the questions seemed to be going a different way. So I went up afterwards and I asked him, I said, Dr. Bob, when I was down in the fall, I said, I asked some people about this because I said, I heard that Terry Haskins' funeral was here on campus and I heard you preach that funeral and I heard that John McCain was here. Now let me give you the stage of this so you can get the history of it right. If you don't remember who Terry Haskins is, this is personal to me because Terry and I graduated the same year in the same class, 1976. And Terry went into politics. Terry became an attorney and he went into politics as well and he served in the South Carolina House of Representatives. For the last, I think, about six years he had served as uh, Speaker Pro Tem of the House. So he had risen in his political career, had a tremendous testimony and a tremendous witness and, and was really uh, responsible back in 1999 for the defeat of video poker in South Carolina and just a, a good man, a good man. Well, Terry, I didn't realize this until I saw the issue of the magazine that came out and said about, I didn't really realize this up until the very end, but Terry had this melanoma. He had this cancer on the face and he, he battled cancer for five years and finally, it was finally last October that he passed away. Well, you remember now that back in the earlier part of the year as the presidential ca campaign got going and George Bush spoke at Bob Jones and, and, and the press got a hold of that thing, but they got a hold of it because of John McCain. John McCain was the guy that tried to utilize that to his own advantage and basically cast the university into a, an intolerable, uh, sort of a, a unhealthy, unwholesome national limelight, one that they never sought, never wanted, but I think conducted themselves well in. Anyway. It got to the point where Terry realized that he was going to have to resign as John McCain's, he was the chairman of John McCain's South Carolina campaign effort. Not George Bush's, John McCain's. And when John McCain did that, Terry realized he was going to have to break with him. And Dr. Bob, so I went up afterwards, I said, Dr. Bob, how'd it go? Well, man, it was like I hit a button, a question he really wanted to, he really wanted to talk about. And he just poured the information out, telling about this thing of how Terry, when Terry died, his funeral was in the Rotahaver Auditorium uh, there on Bob Jones campus because he wanted to be a testimony for Christ and he wanted that service to be a testimony for Christ. Well, when Terry told John McCain that he was going to resign, he first counseled with Dr. Bob because he said to him, he said, you know, he said, I feel like this is the thing I have to do. He said, I feel like this is what's right to do. But he said, I don't want to drive him further away because he's been, he'd been witnessing to him. Now, isn't that great? Isn't that great? He'd been witnessing to this man. Well, Dr. Bob said, well, Terry, the Lord knows all about that, and, and you just you have to do what's right. There come times we have to do what's right and let the chips fall and let God honor our right decisions. So Terry did what he did. Well, in some ways I say strangely, in other ways not, but strangely enough, it almost it threw them together, closer together. And it was like John McCain would call very frequently. Well, you can understand why, because Terry was battling the very cancer John McCain has. And if you had, have seen pictures of him, you've seen that scar on his face where John McCain was operated on, same thing, see? Well, God is a God of providence, and God is in this. You can mark that down, God is in this. Well, Terry died October 24. We were looking this afternoon to get the date, and the funeral was on the campus. So, funeral's over. You know how it is in a, in a big place, in a room like this, the, 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 the preacher and, and whoever else, they're going out. Can't really stop, but Dr. Bob said he got to the back door in the center and he said, all of a sudden, Lindsey Graham, who's the congressman for South Carolina, was with John McCain. John McCain got there late. His, his plane was late, and he was in the very back. And Lindsey Graham threw out his hand to Dr. Bob and said, Dr. Bob, stop. 
here's John McCain. And of course, what are you going to do? You know, you're walking out of a funeral. You can't stop there and talk 10 minutes, even though you might want to. So Dr. Bob said they'd already talked about it before John McCain ever came. And they said, well, if he comes, we're, we're just going to do what the Bible says. We're not going to react in, in bitterness or anger. We're going we're to be kind. We're going to be Christian. So he said, uh, in that few moments that he had to talk with him there, he, he said, Senator McCain, we're so glad you're here. And he talked to him about how much it had meant to him to know that Senator McCain had been so interested in Terry and had been a support to him and had been calling him every day to encourage him through this battle that he ultimately lost with cancer. Well, then they left there and they went to the cemetery. And when, the, when that part was over, Lindsey Graham brought him back up again and they started to talk again. And John McCain said this to Dr. Bob. He said, Dr. Bob, he said, I would like to come to your office sometime and talk to you privately. Well, Dr. Bob's comment to me was, who knows whether he'll ever do that or not. But, you know, that just underscores a point to me because in following all this, of course, with maybe a personal interest, as you might understand, and I think even if you really weren't following it, but you followed any of the news relating to John McCain, one of the things you pick up is he, he comes across as an angry man. He comes across as a bitter man especially if you follow carefully his remarks and different things that he's said. And when I found out that he had that cancer and that it was the same cancer that Terry Haskins had and that he had gone to that funeral, it just, I need to pray for John McCain. And yet I know that that doesn't really coincide with my nature because I think to myself, that guy's never going to get saved. But beloved, I think this is exactly what God's talking about here. I think that if we don't pray for people like that, one day when we stand before the Lord, we're going to be ashamed because you know God is working in people's hearts. I have no doubt that God is working in John McCain's heart. Some other guy in the second session did ask a question about Larry King. And, you know, God has just given a, a, an incredible opportunity there with, with Larry King. And Dr. Bob was telling about the fact that one of those programs... He said the thing was over, and he said he was so hoping he'd have an opportunity to talk to Larry after the program and have a word of prayer with him. And he said, boom, the cameras went off. And he said, 10 seconds later, Larry King was out of there like a poof, like a magician waved his wand, said Larry King was gone. He said, I was so disappointed. So he went back into the dressing room, take the makeup off and all that business. He said, the door came open, Larry King came in. Wanted to talk to him. And he said, Larry, I'm so glad and they had prayer together, and he's had opportunities to witness to him. He's not the only one. Pete Maravich witnessed to Larry King. Other people have witnessed to Larry King. And to hear him talk about the fact that he honestly believes that Larry King is concerned about his soul, that to me is a rebuke. Because if I watch that program on TV, I don't think that. I think, well, there's some guy that's benighted. He's a Jew. He's never going to be saved. But I know God's working in his heart. I happen to know it firsthand. And beloved, I'm here tonight to encourage you. God works in hearts. And not everybody's going to be saved, but some are. And some are going to be saved from every walk of life, even smart people. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, even people that are smart. Not many wise, not many noble, but there's a few. God saves them from every walk of life. What about the goal of our praying? Well, I think, again, there's two thoughts. Let me try to be quick about this. There's a personal one and there's an evangelistic one. Now, do you ever wonder why Paul got a burden to write all this stuff? Why all of a sudden Paul get a burden to write about national prayer? Well, you know anything about when 1 Timothy was written? Well, Nero blamed the Christians for burning Rome in A.D. 64. 
And New Testament scholars generally date 1 Timothy somewhere between 63 and 67. So Paul was telling these people, you need to pray. You need to pray for Nero. You need to pray for all that are in authority for two reasons. One is personal. Because, look at what he says, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Here's the, the way to put this point as practically and quickly as I can put it. You know, people who are in power politically can make things very bumpy for Christians if they decide they're hostile. Can they not? If you don't think that, just look back at what I was just talking about. John McCain made things mighty bumpy. So we be, need to be praying for these people. And we need to pray for a personal stake that we have in it because if these people are not conducive, if they're not friendly, if the fear of God is not in their heart, we may not be able to live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And for 200 plus years, Christians have escaped persecution in the United States of America. And most of us, all of us maybe, have gone to sleep at the switch on account of that. Eight years should have been a wake-up call to us that not everybody's friendly to Bible-believing fundamental Christianity. I'll tell you that right now. So there's a personal stake in it, but there's an evangelistic stake. Because what does it say? It says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, God wants, desires to see them saved. And who knows the factor that God has for our praying in this? I wish I could say more, but my time's about gone, and there's a couple other things I've got to say. What about the qualification for praying? I'll be very brief about this, but look at verse 8. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, you can apply this to all prayer, but since we're talking about national prayer tonight, it really doesn't matter, but when we pray, there are two things Paul lists here. And the list is not exhaustive, but let me point you real quickly. He talks about lifting up holy hands. Well, we don't so much assume that posture in our praying very much, but in the ancient world they did, but that's all right. Whatever he could say, bowing on holy knees. Well, it doesn't matter. The point is, is holiness. And holiness is a word that describes our relationship with God. Now look at the last part, without wrath and doubting. That word doubting is the word disputations and when you have anger and disputations between people, here's what you have. If you have impurity in your life, you have a broken relationship with God. And if you have anger and disputations with people, you have a broken relationship with people. And there are no two things that kill prayer more quickly than right there. If you have a broken relationship with God and if you have a broken relationship with people. If you have somebody that you're not willing to forgive tonight, you might as well just forget it. You can pray, but sooner or later, God's going to bring you up short. And certainly, if we're not walking in fellowship with God, God is not going to honor our prayers. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. Look at how John puts both those thoughts together. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments. That's our relationship to God. That's personal purity. And do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Verse 23, and this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. We do God's will by keeping his commandments, but the commandment he mentions in verse 23 is loving one another. So a broken relationship with God and a broken relationship with our fellow man are killers to prayer. We need to have that fixed so that we can be effective in our praying. Now, let me close by taking the message in just a little bit of a different direction, and let me give just a quick disclaimer. 
I'm saying this tonight not because I look for opportunities to be ugly or to throw pot shots. I think a couple of you think that, so I'm just going to tell you right now you're wrong. But I say it because in mentioning the National Day of Prayer and also in uh, recognition of the fact that we've occasionally had questions about this, don't know that I've ever had anybody come ask me this personally, but I've heard that this question has been asked before. How come the church never does anything about the National Day of Prayer? Well, maybe we should have done more, okay? Is that okay to say up front? We should have emphasized this a little bit more, but I, I want to say this to you. I've never been one to be very comfortable with some of the things that go on uh, in the task force, the National Day of Prayer task force that's led by focus on the family. Now listen, I'm all for prayer and I'm all for the National Day of Prayer, and I also believe that focus on the family does many good things. But when you're asked to participate in something like this, there are certain other factors you have to consider and you have to weigh. Let me just give you a couple thoughts on this very quickly tonight. One of the things that's always made me uncomfortable about it is it is thoroughly ecumenical. Um, I've kept these papers for years. I just brought one to the pulpit tonight to use them as, as an example. But when on the stationery, the letterhead that Shirley Dobson sends about it, they give a list of all the different people. Then you get down to liaisons, and you've got rabbi so-and-so and father so-and-so. And then the other man, I won't mention him, but you all you know him very well. But it's basically you've got a Jewish representative, a Protestant representative, and a Catholic representative. And, and I realize that if... Uh, you're going to have a national effort, you don't disparage other people, but at the same point, if you're going to get together in a public gathering, and there's going to be religious sponsorship, and there's going to be religious identification, you do have to consider these issues. And there's nothing wrong with praying, and there's nothing wrong with us here, or personally emphasizing a national day of prayer, but it makes me very uncomfortable, just as I wouldn't be a part of a ministerium that had apostates in it. I don't care to be associated with gatherings or events that bring too much baggage and murky the waters. Because invariably, now listen, invariably the price of that ecumenicity is always doctrine. You say, there you go again, pastor, you're talking about doctrines, all you ever talk about. <laughs> well, there's a reason for that. And let me just give you one illustration of it tonight. In the letter that came for uh, the early alert, so to speak, for this year's National Day of Prayer, they include, Billy Graham has... Uh, agreed to serve this year as the honorary chairman. And Billy Graham wrote a prayer to be used. And when you read through all the information, uh, they ask you to you know, give this prayer to people, pass it out, and everybody get together at 1230 and pray this prayer on May the 3rd. Well, I'm going to read you the prayer and see if you catch the point of concern that I have, although I, I like many things about the prayer. The wording's very nice, but listen to this. Here's the prayer. Prayer for the nation. Our Father and our God, we praise you for your goodness to our nation, giving us blessings far beyond what we deserve. Yet we know all is not right with America. We deeply need a moral and spiritual renewal to help us meet the many problems we face. Convict us of sin. Help us to turn to you in repentance and faith. Set our feet on the path of your righteousness and peace. We pray today for our nation's leaders. Give them the wisdom to know what is right and the courage to do it. So far, so good. You have said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. May this be a new era for America as we humble ourselves and acknowledge you alone as our Savior and Lord. So far, so good. This we pray in your holy name. Amen. Now, I don't like it anymore. You know why? Because the price of that ecumenicity is my Savior's name. 
And this is what I keep on saying. I don't say it to be ugly. I don't say it to be unkind. I'm all for praying. I'm all for the National Day of Prayer. We'll have more to say about emphasizing here at our church later. Rarely I have been invited to pray at occasions like this. I was honored Judge Kirch invited me to pray at his installation when he became judge. I've been invited a couple of times. I thank the Lord for the invitations by the, one of the, the political parties here in Huntington to pray at their gatherings. I realize that when I go to those events, there are people of all different stripes. And I don't go there with a chip on my shoulder, and I don't go there to make trouble for anybody. But I'll tell you something, when I conclude my prayer, I always pray in Jesus' name. I don't care who's there. I'm just not going to cut that off to make somebody else happy. And you know, the strange thing about it was, I was asked this year to pray at the, the Republican dinner gathering. And uh, when I went up there to pray, now there was no particular introduction made. It was just the program, and then it was time to pray. So when the first thing had been done, the sheriff was before me, Sheriff Harker, and then it was time to pray. And nothing was said about me or anything like that. It was just time to pray. So I got up out of my chair, and I went, and I prayed. And I just prayed. I mean, you know, I didn't think anything special about it. I'd given some thought to what I wanted to say ahead of time. I didn't have anything written out. I prayed my prayer. When I got done praying my prayer, you know who I heard say thank you? Nobody else but Senator Jubileer. And he's Jewish. Hm. You know, it's funny how, and, and I'm sure he was just being polite, but on the other hand, if he was offended, he did a pretty good job of covering it up. So, I hope you understand my heart in this tonight. Wednesday night, on May 2nd, the night before this, uh, we will have a special emphasis about this. And we had designed some special things for Thursday, too, but now we're not going to have the auditorium <laughs> to use. So that's going to alter some of that. But I hope you'll take to heart my message tonight. I hope you won't misunderstand the comments with which I closed. But I think it's important for us to realize praying for our nation is important. It should be a priority. May the Lord encourage us. If every one of us will just pray a couple of times a week, that'll make a big difference. It'll be a whole lot, I think, more than what we do now. Lord, bless us tonight as we've listened to God's Word. I pray, Father, that we might uh, receive an encouragement in everything, Lord, that was from you tonight. I pray, Lord, that you will uh, uh, seal it to our hearts, give us the guidance and direction that we need to apply it personally. And Lord, if there was something in the message tonight that was just a distraction that wasn't necessary, just let that fall to the ground. May we take away the grain and the chaff be blown away. Well, thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.